Welcome to the 7-third podcast. My name is Christopher Heron. I'm the host of the 7-third, a video magazine about cinema, and this is our podcast about cinema. I'm joined by Pavan Mundi, one of the producers of the 7-third. Hello, Pavan. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Today's podcast is with uh, Joe Swanberg, prolific uh, filmmaker Joey Swans. We met with him last last summer. Has it been a year? Yeah, Jesus. it's been over a year. Yeah, and I guess in that last year, uh, his profile has just continued to skyrocket. At the time of this recording, uh, his film Drinking Buddies is on the verge of uh, a release, I believe, here in Canada uh, soon, uh, with Olivia Wilde and Jake Johnson and Anna Kendrick, and who am I missing? Ron Livingston. It's kind of a culmination of a number of films that he's made over the last 10 years or so. Maybe a little bit less than that. So we just kind of, uh, we heard Joe was going to be in town to screen uh, his new trilogy at the time. Yeah, the he films. was he was brought here for a, a few days to screen the three films and to do a bit of a master class, a micro-budget uh, master class. Yeah, we uh, just kind of uh, emailed uh, Joe to see if he would sit down with us, and he was uh, 100% game. He gave us uh, a ton of time. I think this, if it's not our longest, it's certainly one of uh, our top three longest. It's the second one. Yeah, so we had kind of a wide-ranging uh, discussion. We did this at a bar in Kensington Market called Cold Tea, and uh, unfortunately it was really early in the morning. Uh, I think we should, well, not really early. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning when we shot this although uh, you guys did drink in this one right oh absolutely I mean as the the title drinking buddies may give you an impression Joe is a fan of craft breweries a uh, beer in general right, so course. this interview is interesting also because uh, he's so candid uh, in this interview about uh, kind of his feelings about the critical reception to his films and kind of the perception that people have uh, about his films because uh, it's interesting to note and Joe notes this in the interview that he almost considers these films that he had been making up to the up to that point to almost be like a practice like he's still figuring things out yet these films obviously get a uh, pretty significant uh, distribution at least relatively speaking and uh, he kind of I think has a complicated relationship with critics that I think uh, culminated in that boxing match he had shortly after this interview where he uh, if you haven't seen the video uh, definitely look it up he really viciously beats the shit out of uh, Devin Faraci is that who it was yeah complicated relationship but it's, in, it's gonna be interesting uh, to see kind of if those views that he had in that uh, in this interview kind of hold as his films tend are now are finding kind of more mainstream recognition and uh, sort of more acceptance uh, among critics uh, well what's interesting and, and we talk about this in the interview is that Joe Sonberg's films kind of fall into a few different categories depending on the film he's never really worked in one mode and uh, the ones that people tend to talk about are the ones that probably share more in common with drinking buddies something like Hannah Takes the Stairs or um, Nights and Weekends right. but then something like the trilogy which just came out was pretty aggressively avant-garde almost and uh, definitely operating within the the contemporary art film mode those are the critics that we talk about that don't like him so that that's another wrinkle is that he's not necessarily operating within one camp and then he's even crossing over with his collaborators into horror films too 
right, he's doing horror films and he's also working on a really interesting uh, Christmas film called Happy Christmas that's being shot on 16mm. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because uh, Joe Swanberg is a filmmaker you associate, or I associate, with uh, digital filmmaking. So it's interesting to see him going to uh, film for the first time since uh, I think he was in film school uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago because his films really would not be possible without uh, digital uh, cinema. Just the way he shoots, shooting liberally without a script, and also uh, the number of films he's managed to pump out since 2004, 2005 uh, really wouldn't be possible without, uh, without digital equipment. So I hope you guys enjoy this very candid, long-form interview with uh, Joe Swamberg. So with, with the with the trilogy, are you calling it a trilogy, or is that just like for the benefits I've, of certain screenings? I'm, I'm calling it a trilogy. Yeah. yeah. So you just said, okay. Um, it is a trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a trilogy, but there's tendrils to the trilogy too. Like I feel like Uncle Kent is also yeah exactly connected, and autoerotics connected, and Caitlin plays herself is connected, but uh, they're you know they're. Uh, they're inside of the triangle, I'd say, but not part of the trilogy. The Bermuda Triangle? Yeah. <laughs> of 2010 movies. Well, what I find interesting about them is that they're all kind of united by the meta level that a lot of them have being about filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But anytime I read anyone talking about that, I don't ever see anyone mention the kind of lineage of art film. And it seems like because they're almost more difficult films structurally, that they are kind of moving more into that mode. Yeah. Is, is that something that you reflected on while making them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, it's certainly not territory that people haven't been to before, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I just feel like in general audiences are less interested in art film than they ever have been. Even, even uh, the cinephile audience is uh, just as excited by Mad Men and the Avengers as they are by serious, you know, serious art film. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this movie VHS that I uh, directed one of the segments of, um, after Sundance, you know, like the Film Society of Lincoln Center's website, they had a, somebody at Sundance covering the festival and, uh, you know, VHS was like their favorite film of the festival. And I, you know, I mean, obviously I really like VHS, but it's also, uh, it's not striving to be a part of the serious art film discussion. And then this, the people who are sort of uh, hosting the serious art film discussion are bringing it in uh, 
And it's a little, it's a little weird because the people who are trying to be part of the serious art film discussion, uh, it's harder than ever to, to enter into that conversation as, as all this other stuff is um, being dragged in. But I think, it, I mean, I think the cinephiles are just bored in general. You know, I feel like uh, there's only so much time you can spend watching movies before you just get bored and you have to start looking for stuff. You have to start concocting uh, cockamamie explanations for movies and things like that. I know because I've, I've been there. Well, the explanation is kind of built into the zone too. Yeah. Um, was that something? That started, I, I feel like Nights and Weekends was the first thing that I made where the, where the second half of Nights and Weekends is a comment on the making of the first half. Like it feels very self-contained to me. And, and I like that structure. It feels nice. It sort of wraps up in a nice little package but still leaves a few questions. Like at the end of the zone, uh, spoiler alert, um, you know, when my wife and I are, are sitting there talking about the, set, the, you know, the film and the film within the film, uh, even though it ends there, hopefully that conversation should be questioned too, as far as whether it's real or not. Uh, and so in a way it's like a nice summary of what you've just watched and then also it's totally an open door to question all of it at that point. It, do you think people are going to get that reading though? It seems like it's kind of... I, I, I do think so from talking to people that, that that's making sense. I mean, the, the, the Zone is a weird movie because uh, in a way it's like 40, 45 minutes of a bad movie to get to the part where they talk about how it's not very good and then it's another 30 minutes of a bad movie to get to the final conversation <laughs> where they talk about how it's not very good. And it's a lot to ask of an audience, you know? I mean, I, I don't... Uh, it's not a goof for me. It's not like I'm making fun of the audience or any of that stuff. I'm, I'm trying to have a very, very serious conversation about performance and about, uh, you know, mumblecore and, and where, where the lines get drawn between uh, acting and non-acting and, and a character and playing yourself and how playing yourself is still a character. And, you know, I, I, that, the zone was the only way that I knew of to really talk about that kind of stuff and to show, you know, to provide real side-by-side -side, uh, examples of that, uh, those levels of performance. Uh, but at the same time, it's a, it's, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird thing to ask an audience to, to go along with me, you know, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to put these three movies out into the world in a way where I'm letting the audience come to it. I'm not trying to shove it down anyone's throat, you know? They're not, um, they're being presented in very specific ways for, for the people who are willing to like go along on this little thing with me. In the zone, um, the iPhone's used as a device in the actual film within a film, and yeah. then when you're talking about the film within a film, it's talked about as a device yeah. to kind of get around certain continuity issues. Uh -huh. But it's also a kind of realism, uh, it's a realistic uh, aesthetic. Yeah. And then that last shot is like pointedly not in an iPhone. Like how yeah. did you balance how people read like the iPhone footage uh -huh. versus the, the more traditional footage? Well, I, 
I mean, this, this, the 7D, for me, the, the, the zone was the first thing that I shot in, you know, on the 7D. And, uh, I mean, it's just as much a novelty as the iPhone, I thought. You know, I mean, it was, it, it was nice to mirror those two uh, aesthetics. And um, I, I mean, I, I think everybody, we're kind of living in a time where everybody's super media literate. Even uh, non-filmmaker, non-media people still uh, have a really good radar for reality and fiction. And um, because of YouTube and web video and amateur pornography and all these kind of things, we, we've all gotten very used to watching a, a certain kind of uh, uh, reality, a way that we feel like reality looks, real reality, not reality TV reality. And, um, and so I'm, I'm constantly trying to bring the movies into that space, you know, and, uh, and have them be little time capsules of these aesthetics, which are coming and going really quickly now, much, much, at a much faster rate than they used to. So uh, with each new movie, whatever the thing, like, like Uncle Kent, I didn't make very long ago, you know, I shot it in uh, around this time in 2010, so only two years ago, but like, at the time it was the flip cam, you know? Now it's the iPhone and it's only two years later and I feel like two years from now it'll be some other cool new device that people are using that, you know, hooks over your ear and has a little camera, whatever it is. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep bringing this stuff into the work and keep having uh, the movies uh, look like whatever right now looks like. It's interesting though because you'll be watching it the film in like a theater or maybe Netflix or whatever. Yeah. The, it's not always how people say watch amateur pornography yeah, or right. or their friends uh, party right. photos on, on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that? Play but it's into still it still contextualizes reality for people. Yeah. I feel like you know, even though it's not uh, on a laptop in a little YouTube window, yeah. it's still. Uh, I still think it sends up those flags that like this is real, what you're watching now is real and what you were watching before was fake. And uh, it's, nice to, it's nice to use the aesthetic of realism to do fake stuff. Real stuff that turns out to be fake stuff. Well, I think it still always has that frame that you've mediated it. As it's, it's almost like a paradox. The more real you get and the more yeah. you use these devices, the more the audience is aware that you are choosing to right. do them. Hopefully. So it, yeah. So it's almost like, and this is something I've noticed in all of your work, is that on the one hand, you can always say that it's like supernatural, like the improvisation, the, yeah. the lack of bells and whistles aesthetically, but that's almost also... You mean super space natural, right? Not <laughs> yeah. supernatural. Yeah. Well, it okay. could be heading in that uh -huh. direction, right? Uh -huh. um, but it, um, it also, that has an experimental quality because the way we're geared to watch like verisimilitude in cinema is yeah. a very kind of fake procedure. Yeah, so this yeah. is almost more jarring. Right. To a spectator, would you, right. is that something that you consider? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I don't have any interest in tricking or lulling anybody into uh, forgetting that they're watching a movie. Sometimes I do. There have been, there have been uh, films that I've made where I, 
I don't want that awareness to be a big part of the watching experience. But most of the time, I do. And, uh, and so I'm not ever making decisions based on uh, uh, drawing people in. Most of the decisions I'm making are based on throwing up big flags like pay attention to this, it's fake, or pay attention to this, it's supposed to be real, or, or, or perform, you know, conversations about performance or anything. It's interesting you mentioned that some of them that is the goal because it seems like with the trilogy you're making a point to say these films have something that's connected and I'm wondering after this many films if you, when you're looking at your own body of work how do you kind of connect them like there are, the, are there the ones where uh, you want the form to be a little less obvious and yeah I would say that that the three that I did with Anish are the, are the three uh, Hannah Takes the Stairs, Nights and Weekends and Alexander the Last are the three uh, most traditional uh, least meta, even though there's a lot of meta going on. They're the least uh, of those. I would say Kissing on the Mouth and LOL are, are very experimental and are, you know, me uh, working through and shaking off a lot of film school things um, and trying, you know, challenging myself to try a lot of things. Um, and now I'm, I'm probably, now that I've made uh, these, you know, uh, Silver Bullets art history in the zone, um, I'm going back to more traditional modes of storytelling because I kind of work that out of my system now. I'll probably go through these kinds of cycles, you know, where I'll make a couple just kind of straightforward movies and then I'll make a few movies about the experience of making those <laughs> movies and then I'll just keep repeating that. And autoerotic is kind of like, I don't know, it's like a Twilight Zone film. It's yeah. kind of like an omnibus, but yeah, you've yeah. done every part. Right. How, how was the structure of that conceived? Um, I was just, wor you know, Adam Wingard made this movie called What Fun We Were Having, which is four short stories, and he cast me in one of them. And when I saw, I just being on his set, you know, and sort of seeing the way he was doing those, I just thought, man, it's such a great idea. It's such a great excuse to work with a lot of actors you like. It's a great, uh, it's a great way to tell uh, stories that aren't quite feature-length stories. Tell just a few of them at once, and so uh, you know, I just called him and said, like, let's just do it again, and hopefully we'll do another. You know, I mean, I think uh, uh, we both had a really good time making that movie. And it's interesting because there's kind of an inner text with all of your films because you do use certain. You use a lot of actors uh, repeatedly, but yeah. almost in like stretches. Like there's always a, a thread that keeps it going. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's like uh, that's probably. I mean, that just came naturally to me. But it's also like something that Altman did, and a lot of other filmmakers that I, you know, you'll sort of see uh, somebody pop up in a small role in one movie, then they'll have a big role in the next, then they'll have a small role in the next, and then you won't see them for a few movies, and then they'll sort of pop up again. Um, that's also just the way, I mean, when we're shooting something, the conversations are always geared towards what the next thing is. So it's, it's natural that some of the people from the one movie end up in the next one just because they were, they were around while it was being conceived. So, so I start to imagine them in those roles, you know. There's they're not isolated productions. They're, they're very uh, free-flowing from one into the next. But there's also and sometimes like, they're, they're happening simultaneously. I mean, sometimes I actually am shooting them both at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, 
with autoerotic, uh, the reason Ty West and Amy Simons and Kate Shield were in Chicago was to finish Silver Bullets. And then I was like, well, we should just make another movie while you guys are all here. And then that sort of became autoerotic. So um, that's a Roger Corman trick <laughs> that, I, that I learned from him, which is like, shoot the one movie, and then if you have a few days left over, quickly make a second one. There's this compulsion to read the, the use of those actors, though, is, and it's probably because of the format you use, but a lot of times critics will see it as like the actual making of the film is being laid bare a little more because, uh -huh. and there's almost this desire to read the, the true relationship between you and the yeah. individuals yeah. in the story. Right. Is that difficult uh, to like kind of tread that water? It's a little annoying. I mean, it's... Uh... It's, I guess it's to be expected just because the movies are already so small and, and some of them are so autobiographical that it's, I think it's easy to then assume that all of them are autobiographical. Um, and I'm wondering actually how long it'll take and how far away I'll have to get from those movies before they can just be approached as like movies, you know, not as... Uh, documents of relationships or anything <laughs> like that. I don't, I don't, uh, something like Nights and Weekends was very specifically uh, about Greta and I's friendship and, and working relationship and whatever else, but uh, something like Alexander the Last uh, wasn't at all for me about Jess and I or, or Amy and I's or Barlow and I's working relationship, you know, so, so, uh, but it's tricky because those movies came out a year apart from each other. So when I, when nights and weekend shows, and then Greta and I do a Q and A and talk about how specifically it was about that, I think it makes sense for people then to watch Alexander the Last and think, okay, well then how is this also about that? Um, even though it's not at all, or wasn't intentionally for me. So is that maybe how certain films have a co-directing credit? Like, is that... Um... Yeah, well, Nights and Weekends ended up being that. That just felt the most right to me because, uh, you know, there was just usually a... a thank you. Thank you. There was usually just Greta and I and then a camera person and a sound person, you know? Yeah. So, like, at the end of a take, she and I had to rely on each other for performance critique, you know, and, and uh, to get some kind of sense of how that scene went and what the next scene would be like. And so we really were directing each other, you know, sort of relying on each other in that way. But with something like autoerotic, like that was always meant to be me and Adam co-directing. And really he, he uh, you know, he wrote some of the segments and, and was more in charge of directing Salman, I was more in charge of directing others. So that was more like a true co-direction thing. Do you think with those... Nobody films? directed Nights and Weekends. <laughs> <laughs> we think... just experienced it. With the, with the new films, though, do you think that now people will feel like they have an understanding of your process? Or they're going to assume I hope they not. know? <laughs> I hope not. Those movies are spoofs of the process, you know? Hopefully The Zone... If you've watched Silver Bullets and art history and felt like you had a window into the process, hopefully the zone is the key to discovering that you didn't, <laughs> that you, that shouldn't be trusted. Um, those, I, I mean, art history specifically was like my embodiment of all the worst things that had been said about my movies and about the way that I work, you know? And 
Um, and it was fun for me to play, to play that guy, to play uh, the director who is making the like worst example of a mumblecore movie, you know, <laughs> this kind of aimless, plotless, sex-filled kind of stupid relationship thing. Um, and the way that you see me directing that movie isn't very close to how, how I would behave on set, you know. It's, it's definitely acting in the character. But also it's fun to not, to not have the movie spell that out, you know, just to like, because I don't care. If people want to assume that that's how I direct, I don't, I don't care, you know. So uh, it's nice to just put that representation of myself out into the world and then let it sit along with the work. I wanted to ask you about the title of art history because, and this maybe dovetails with what you just said, but it assumed, I assumed that it was kind of a riff on how mumblecore as a descriptor is so kind of ridiculously basic, the way that kind of the French New Wave was in the uh -huh. sense that if you look at any of those, all of those films side by side, you wouldn't say like, oh, they all share anything because they yeah. really don't. Yeah. Um, is, is it kind of, and you say it's a commentary on mumblecore, is it almost a commentary on how art history likes to periodize things and kind of a little bit. I mean, it, it, that that title ha had a, served a few purposes for me. One of them was that the movie is so small, and it was just five of us in one location, and it's such long, slow takes that I thought a really like obnoxiously big title would be, you know, like something very grand <laughs> as the title would be a nice uh, a sort of counterbalance to the s smallness of the movie. Also, it's my own personal art history, you know, I mean, in a way, uh, even though uh, the character that I play in art history is very much a character and the, and the film he's making and the way his set is run uh, isn't quite how I would run my actual sets, the dynamics are very autobiographical, you know, the movie's not, uh, the film within a film is a, is a bit of a spoof, but the film itself is not at all. Uh, these kind of intimate situations and the, and the way that my character feels as a director is sort of simultaneously uh, happy and excited about the chemistry that he's creating between his actors and also intensely jealous of the experience that they're getting to have versus the experience he's having. Uh, that is historically the experience that I've had. So art history also felt like a nice personal title. like. Uh, my art history, but I wouldn't want to call a movie my art history. Um, and then, yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, what you were saying too is, is definitely factored in. There's also a period where I was just meeting a lot of people who were majoring in art history, <laughs> and I was just curious about that. I was like, why am I, come everybody I'm meeting is an art history major? So that, that, well, those two words were floating around in my head a lot. I'm glad that you say that it's not just a spoof because there's also some shots in that that I think are maybe my favorites that you've, you've done. And they also strike me almost as if they're closer to European or Asian. Because mm -hmm. uh, it, it's interesting that your films are never really considered to be of a piece with those. Yeah. But there is like yeah. stylistic similarities. Yeah. Nonetheless, yeah. Like the sh I'm thinking of two shots. One of uh, where Ken's uh, feet are in the water and when they're having breakfast and it's just that super long uh -huh. shot. Uh -huh. Those seem very similar. To yeah. I mean, those are the movies that I tend to watch, you know? I mean, that's, uh, that's certainly uh, 
that stuff's influential on me. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I just don't think people are looking at tiny budget American films. They're not looking for, like, 60s and 70s European cinema references. So they're not seeing them because they're not even, wouldn't cross their mind to think about that. Um, but also, like, uh, Hong Sang-soo or somebody, you know, I mean, that's definitely... I think people are starting to catch on. Like, uh, uh, you know, I talked to a few New York critics when, when Art History... Uh, was playing in New York, and I, I think people are starting to see that that I'm pulling some references from contemporary Asian and, and European filmmakers. But um, but yeah, that guy's movies are great, you know, and they're also all about filmmaking and and about directors and actors' relationships and things like that. Um, and uh, I mean, I think it's. I think it's time to acknowledge that uh, the kinds of audiences that are seeing these kinds of art movies are, are small enough and film literate enough that the movies can just be about filmmaking now. You know, like, uh, it's, these movies aren't reaching a general audience. So there's no reason to fool anybody into thinking they are. They might as well be hyper-specifically about the filmmaking process because the audience who's sitting there watching them is already thinking about the filmmaking process. Most of the people who are watching, most of the New York uh, cinephiles who are showing up to watch a Hong Sang-soo film already have either met him or read a lot of interviews with him. They know about his filmmaking process and they're watching the movie on two layers. They're watching the film and then they're also in their head thinking about the production of the film. So it, it makes sense that the film is also about the production of the film, you know? Yeah, it reminded me of Simon Lang as well. Like, mm -hmm. But that maybe also is a good point to cross over into uh, depictions of sex, too, mm -hmm. because he's also got this kind of uh, long Sai or Hong? Sai. Uh -huh. um, where he, there's also that element of representing, like if you're dealing with representing reality and how we look at reality, then also acknowledging that you have to represent sex as well. And uh -huh. I was wondering if you could, I mean, this is a question that comes up a lot for you, but I don't think I've ever read anything where you talk about your representations of sex in in relation to what you've seen or, or uh -huh. your own uh, viewership. Uh huh. Well, I, I mean, initially with Kissing on the Mouth, it came out. I, I mean, most of that movie was born out of frustration of not seeing any kind of realistic depictions of sex. Like getting to a point uh, where I'd gotten out of film school, where I just realized like I was not seeing my life in other movies. You know. Um, nobody was doing a good job. MTV wasn't doing a good job representing young people. Uh, cinema wasn't doing a good job representing young people. Like, I just wasn't uh, seeing stuff. And I think that, uh, you know, Bujowski and the Duplasses and Aaron Katz and a lot of other people were, were similarly frustrated at the same time that I was and starting to make work about that, you know. Um, and, uh, but none of those guys are dealing with sex. Um, and, and like Bujowski and Katz's movies are almost like asexual, right? <laughs> though, though uh, I think Katz's definitely are. Bujowski's are, are occasionally digging into that area. Like mutual appreciation is definitely uh, uh, scratching at the surface of that stuff. And Beeswax has a really cool sex scene in it, you know, so... Uh, but in a way, like, I'm trying to steal a lot of this imagery back from pornography, you know? Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it belongs to pornography. 
and we've let it go there, you know, to the point where uh, when you show an erect penis now, that's all anybody can think about. And it's a shame, you know, I think that uh, uh, historically the naked body has belonged to the fine art world. And then just in the last like 40 years, uh, the mass media uh, like uh, took it away from that realm. And now uh, there are a lot of other factors and considerations as well, like the internet. Like actors now, they just know if they take their clothes off in a movie, the, those pictures are going to end up on the internet, which makes people a lot less willing to, to do that, you know, to be sort of um, adventurous and to use their bodies as a tool that they have. So um, it's a tricky time to be trying to make uh, films with realistic depictions of sex and sexuality. Um, it's also, you know, distributors don't want to touch those movies and, and audiences don't seem to want to go sit in a theater and watch them with other people. You know, they feel, they've, they've learned to feel comfortable watching sex at home on their computer, not in a movie theater. Is that something you consider when you look into the distribution for each new film? Like what strategy you're going to use? I mean, some, with something like art history where the movie opens with a sex scene and a condom being put on a penis and stuff, you just know right from the get-go that, you know, the, the Sony Pictures Classics <laughs> isn't going to buy that movie and put it in a thousand theaters. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I try not to think about that stuff going into it. But it, it becomes very apparent very quickly whether, the, whether certain films are going to be even accessible to distributors in a bigger audience. Yeah, but it also seems like that could be like... In the hands of maybe a wrong, the wrong um, uh, company, uh, uh -huh. something they used to sell it on a platform like Netflix. Nobody, nobody is selling sex anymore. Yeah, it's not. It's not very profitable. It's not marketable. <laughs> Everybody can get it for free yeah. on the computer. You know, so nobody. Uh, the way that they did in the fifties and sixties, when the when the European art film started to creep into the American. Uh, marketplace where they were selling them really specifically on the fact that there was realistic depictions of sex and naked women and whatever else uh, you know those movies could make a lot of money because it was a novelty it's not there's nothing novel about it anymore you know so it's a really it's a, it's a lose-lose situation as a filmmaker like you can't uh, you just can't expect people to pay for nudity anymore and you can't expect distributors to be able to use that as a marketing hook. Unless the person who's taking their clothes off is really famous. And even then, I think it's not, it's not as appealing to distributors as it used to be. So, so everybody's sort of fled that, that arena and um, the, the people who choose to work in that, like Winterbottom's film Nine Songs or something oh, yeah, like yeah. that, you know, like um, uh, the discussion around that movie just becomes specifically about the sex, you know. I, that, that's, that movie's probably a bad example because, uh, let me think of something, a better example of that. Like uh, contemporary or? Yeah, like somebody who's, who's has real, realistic sex scenes in their movie, but the movie is being talked about not because of that. Oh, yeah. It's hard to, <laughs> yeah, it's hard yeah. to think of an example where that doesn't become the focal point. Well, uh, that movie, Late Marriage, had some pretty great sex scenes in it. 
that I don't think became, became the entire conversation. But I think if the director has established themselves kind of for mm -hmm. their films and then they move in that direction, they, they have that safety net. Like the, mm -hmm. the critics already have a, a, a way of approaching it right. without having to reduce yeah, yeah, it to yeah. that. But Winterbottom had a huge body of work. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but he, I think he led that discussion. I mean, I think he, he made sex the point. So that, that's why I'm saying that's a bad example. But. And the UK, like, especially as a context where that's going to be mm -hmm. amplified no matter what right. because of their censorship. Right. Um, what about sex's relationship with the horror genre now that you're starting to, to use that iconography uh -huh. a little more? Well, the... I mean, maybe that is still a realm. Maybe the horror films are still a realm where you, where like it's expected that you're going to see the lead actress's breasts at some point or something. But I mean, that that kind of stuff is the least interesting thing about horror films to me. You know, I think for even for a horror audience, uh, it's moving away from that that kind of like cheap gratuitous nudity thing. Uh, and it's becoming much more about violence and, and like crazy ways to kill people. Um, but, you know, the, my shift towards horror movies is entirely about the, the dedicated audience that those movies have. Like, I'm not, uh, I'm not particularly interested in uh, the genre, you know. I, there's a lot of horror movies I like a lot, but it's not, I'm not uh, a devoted fan and I don't see everything that comes out. But the fact that there are those people that are really obsessively horror movie fans, uh, it makes me really jealous uh, for the people that make horror movies because it's cool to have an, a big audience that cares that much. And I don't see it with the art house movie. You know, I, year from year to year, uh, I think that uh, the art house audience is growing every year. I don't, I'm, I'm not like, uh, I'm not nostalgic for a, a previous time period. I actually think it's a better time to be making art films right now than ever before. But I also think that that audience is super fractured. They're not uh, rallying around uh, coming out to see these movies in the theater necessarily because they can get them on DVD or they can get them on BitTorrent or, um, or they're seeing them at festivals but the movie is showing three times on different days and the audience is really split, you know. and uh, and I kind of, the thing that I'm most envious of of the horror filmmakers is like, like rabid interest about the movie leading up to its release and then everybody sees it on the same day and then everybody talks about it. And because these movies are for a mass audience, uh, they don't have to play film festivals. They get to just come out on a Friday night in movie theaters, you know, and, that, and then that's the way everybody sees them. And... Uh, and it's cool, you know. I think it's uh, it's one of the only areas left where there's that like intense focused discussion around certain things. Do you think it's because they have um, there's a kind of added thrill to seeing it, seeing something like that so big? Like it kind of takes the amusement park element to it. Yeah, definitely. But I feel like art films have the same thrill. I mean, it's it, it, it's so much more fun to see even a really slow art movie in a big theater with people, you know? And the, and, um, the really good movies are, are dramatic and also funny and also whatever else, and all those laughs are amplified and all the, 
drama's amplified when you're when you're in a room watching it on a really big screen. So uh, it's true that horror movies uh, have a little bit more of that thrill ride aspect to them, but I don't think art films don't have that aspect, you know. Um, but but it's been easier for people to justify watching. Uh, you know, a Tsai Ming Liang movie on DVD when it comes out than like having to drive three hours to a major city to try and catch it, you know, during its run, if it even gets a run. I mean, those movies aren't even getting really released theatrically anymore. It almost seems like as, as well it would be a better place to see something, even your films included, because it has that element in the theater where you submit to the pace of the film, whereas yes. if you're watching it Absolutely, home, yeah. It's really, even I have a really difficult time uh, watching a movie at home where I'm not pulling my phone out to check my email or I'm not getting up to get a drink or whatever else, you know. So uh, there is something about being forced to pay attention for the entire running time of the movie that's really useful. Yeah, because... I think a filmmaker is designing the film to be paid attention to in that way. So when the audience isn't paying attention in that way, something's lost. And you kind of have to adjust to, like, how it's going to play out and then once you do that you're fine but like yeah. when you're at home you may not get over that initial hurdle right. of right is that something that if, i mean how do you how do you approach like theatrical distribution like how much do you push for it or maybe have kind of accepted certain films or not as you say i mean i've accepted actually from the very beginning i've accepted that the way if, if my movies ever have substantial theatrical runs, it will be 30 years from now. It won't be now. Um, because I feel like the, the, the repertory scene is alive and well. I mean, that, that actually is an area where, where cinephiles are coming out to see movies in the theater, is like when a new print is struck of some 1970s film. Uh, suddenly, there's sold-out screenings, and, and people are really interested. So... Uh, there's an aspect of the audience. Uh, what's interesting about that is that you expect that that audience is the vanguard. You know, you, you would hope that the people that would be coming out for the repertory screenings would be the really open-minded, engaged audience. In fact, I think that they're cowards most of the time. They need, uh, they need the stuff to have been uh, canonized in the meantime. And uh, they're... they're their mentality is much more sheep-like than uh, a mainstream Hollywood audience in a lot of ways because they're not, uh, they're way less willing to give uh, new movies a shot or to like stick their flag in a new movie and say, I really like this, especially if it's a controversial or uh, in the case of a lot of my friends' movies, like slightly amateurish or low budget or whatever else movie because uh, the culture, the cinephile culture is really, uh, there's a lot of bullies within that culture and there's a lot of um, a lot of loud voices that are ready to call you stupid if you're, if you're not into the right movies. And, and I think you see it when you look at the top ten lists at the end of the year. Uh, when, when, you know, several hundred critics all submit their top ten lists and it's basically the same ten movies. Uh, I think that's born out of that kind of fear of like standing alone behind certain work that may not stand the test of time. You know, these people are uh, deathly afraid of uh, their reputations being uh, shot, you know. So um, it's a little frustrating uh, 
to see the new to see the new movies that will succeed in repertory 30 years from now not getting much attention and it's also annoying to see uh, the kind of people that could be champions for those movies uh, too afraid to kind of uh, raise their voices about them how important is it then for on the other hand to have maybe that one critic that like on a, in a festival gives you that that write-up that convinces people. it's hugely important I mean that's where uh, I mean, the, the, you know, we've sort of watched film critics uh, at all the major papers lose their jobs and, and be replaced by bloggers and whatever. You know, I mean, it's, uh, there aren't that many critics left that are powerful enough to really change the course of the life of your movie. You know, Roger Ebert can still do it. And like maybe Manola and, and Tony Scott at the, at the New York Times and uh, a few other people still have that sway to like, uh, overnight sort of changed the conversation around certain films. But, um, but for the most part, I think these, these critics have realized that the only real impact they can have on the small movies is to hurt them, not to help them. So like, if you're a, a second string or third string critic at one of these papers and you write a really bad review of a movie, you can definitely kill its chances of finding an audience. But if you write a really great review of a movie, you're not necessarily going to sell that many more tickets when it opens, you know? So um, the, the kind of power dynamic has shifted in that sense. But um, it's, certainly, uh, it's certainly great to have champions for, for the movies, you know? Like, for me, like Richard Brody at The New Yorker has really... Uh, been a champion in a true sense of the word, you know, I mean, he, he has uh, gone out of his way uh, to help my work find an audience, you know, and, and for, no, uh, for no real gain on his end other than he likes the work and wants to support it. And it's not just me, it's several like small American filmmakers that he's really, uh, he's really banged the drum for for several years now. And that's, that is hugely helpful, you know. That really has, uh, not only has it helped uh, the work, my work and, and other people's work, find an audience, but it's also uh, within that kind of like groupthink world of film critics, uh, he's helped change the way my movies are perceived by a lot of people, you know, because uh, the people who wouldn't, uh, who wouldn't stand up for my work by themselves uh, might stand up for it alongside Brody or alongside uh, a certain other, uh, you know, more influential critic. So to have somebody like that uh, as a champion has a lot of benefits that are, that are not visible right away, but I think will be uh, visible five years from now or something as, as he kind of helps change the change the conversation around the mumblecore movies, for lack of a better word. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because I think that was the issue at the start, at least in my understanding. It seems like your films didn't have that art critic or art film critic yeah. support early on. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with the associations that were made as far as what is mumblecore uh -huh. and then kind of reading too much into that. Yeah. I mean, I think... I'll, yeah, I, I agree. I mean... Uh, you know, and I don't shoot on 16 millimeter, which is like, I think the, the quickest shorthand to like, 
convincing these people that you're serious about making art films, you know, shooting on like low grade video cameras, at least in 2005, wasn't compelling evidence that I was serious about what I was doing, you know, whereas like with Bujowski shooting on film, uh, there's a cost involved where you can't, you have to be serious to spend the money, you know, and um, uh, not to take anything away from his movies because I think they're really good, but uh, you know, I have noticed that the filmmakers who've made a point to shoot on film have gotten a lot more of that critical support right from the get-go uh, because I think uh, those movies are much easier to take seriously, you know, um, or to feel justified uh, in championing. And, um, and it's starting to shift, you know. I mean, and, and also, uh, I'm younger than those guys, you know. Bujowski's a few years older than me, and, um, and we just came, we went to film school in, at different times where video meant something different to, to us, you know. It meant something different to me than it did to him. And I think that that, uh, even though it's just a few years apart, I feel like that there was a generation gap there in some senses, um, at least film school-wise. Because, you know, at the time when I made Kissing on the Mouth, I was 22. And, uh, you know, the, all the filmmakers who are my age or younger don't have any stigma about video. And everybody who's just even like three years older than me uh, had to get had to really get over that video thing. Do you think it may also be because of kind of the improvis improvisational qualities, where there was the assumption that there wasn't a lot of control or yeah, a lot of? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I was talking to uh, uh, another filmmaker um, uh, who also works, you know, does sort of improv movies and. He was saying that like we need to change the conversation around improvised movies and make it uh, to to really just acknowledge that we're still writing, but we're just writing in a different way than somebody who sits down at a computer and writes a script, you know? Because um, he's he's super annoyed about that perception of improvised movies that there's not as much work happening, you know, or that the movies aren't aren't as uh, deliberate as something that was like scripted out beforehand. I'm wondering if like the rise of kind of improvisational comedy and how accepted that's becoming may also contribute to a, a greater acceptance, or not acceptance, acknowledgement that there is a, a more at, at play. Yeah, I think so, but it's gonna be slow to trickle over. I mean, it, it's uh, like the Judd Apatow films where there's clearly a lot of improvisation happening on set, uh, those aren't, I don't think it's in one-to-one -one easy correlation to look at those movies and, and an appreciation of those movies and then directly apply it to something like art history or whatever, you know, so, um, but yeah, it's all, it all helps. I mean, it all, it's all just educating an audience about uh, how we define talent and also how we define uh, vision, you know, and, and why uh, improvisation is just one part of a complicated tools toolkit that a filmmaker can use, you know. Um, how have you noticed the uh, the subscription series you've got going for the the home video release of the 
your latest films? It's been incredible. I mean, it's the first time that I've ever really been in control of how the work is presented, you know, and what what kind of accompanies it. And I actually think, uh, in some sense, that kind of stuff does matter, you know. I mean, uh, that that kind of presentation. Uh, can teach somebody how to watch the movies or how to kind of uh, think about them as a trilogy or, or whatever else. So it's been really cool. And, and Matt Grady at Factory 25 is, is just somebody who really cares about that stuff. That was always the thing that was missing for me of why I didn't do more self-distribution earlier on is because I don't, uh, I'm not obsessive about it and I'm not, it's not my passion, you know, but it is Matt's passion. He's really uh, smart and has great taste and is just really good at uh, coming up with cool ways to, to package these movies. And so uh, working with him has just been such a treat because uh, he's helping me put this box together in a really great way, you know, where I feel, I just feel really good about the movies being out there like that. It reminds me almost of like the, say, the Criterion Collection or even in, in music like Numero Group or something like that where there's mm -hmm. like a kind of consistent design that acts as the first thing people see and if it seems like that's controlled and yeah. and very specific that the film is also, it gives it leeway because you almost already trust the decisions that are being right. made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, until until the work... Uh, has been around for long enough that there's an implicit trust. I think, yeah, it's really it really helps uh, to do the legwork early on, you know, to to let an audience know that you're putting some thought into these decisions. So, with your your career moving in kind of cycles, do you have an idea of what the next cycle is? Well, yeah, I mean, I have an idea of what it could be, but it, but. Uh, I mean, I'm going to try and do some bigger movies, you know, some slightly bigger budgets and work with some recognizable actors. And um, But the thing about that is that those movies are harder to make. You know, I mean, uh, historically, I've just been able to call my friends and, and if everybody was free, we would just make the movie. And, and at the slightly bigger budget level and with the bigger names involved, uh, it's going to be harder to do that. It's probably going to take a few tries. Uh, to get something going, you know, so um, I'm starting those balls rolling and then in the smaller movies that I'm doing right now I'm just uh, I'm moving away from uh, the kind of self-analysis that was happening in this trilogy and and I'm enjoying telling stories about other people for a change, you know, so that would be closer to say Alexandra. Yeah, well probably closer I would say to uh, Hannah takes the okay. stairs or something where I, where I'm a documentarian observing somebody else's life. You know, the films are still autobiographical, but they're autobiographical to the actors, not to yeah. me. Um, whereas Alexander the Last, I felt like was still uh, investigating my own process, using actors to investigate my own process. I'm going back to uh, investigating the actors' lives. It seemed like there were certain aesthetic shifts that you've had, and I'm wondering if those will continue. Like, I find maybe it's autoerotic that's the most like this, but you have licensed music. There's mm -hmm. like, it seems like the camera's moving in a more mm -hmm. tracking manner. Is mm -hmm. that, or, or how do you approach the, the kind of techniques you use aesthetically? 
Um, a lot of that depends on who I'm working with and what what tools we have access to on any given project. Like with Autoerotic, we were working with uh, Chris Hillicky, who you know brought a bigger camera package and dolly track and all that kind of stuff. So it was very easy and fluid on a tiny budget to still sort of incorporate all of that stuff. And then uh, this movie that I'm finishing up right now called All the Light in the Sky. It's something that I'm I'm doing that Jane Adams is starring in. Uh, I had nothing, you know, I was doing everything myself, so it's all locked in. And, um, so it, it really just, project by project, I approach each one aesthetically as its own sort of thing. There's not a lot of continuity for me from one to the next in that regard. How much influence do your collaborators on from the camera perspective, like your DPs occasionally when you have them, yeah. how, how does that influence those? I let them, I, you know, I work with them the same way I work with the actors. I give them a ton of freedom, you know. I've, I've brought them into the process because I already trust them and like what they do. So um, I'm not a micromanager in that sense, you know. I'm really happy to just find somebody talented and then, and then uh, use their talents, you know. It's interesting though, because the reception is going to always be eventually to you. So even when right. they're making those decisions, it's right. almost as if like yeah. people are going to read like, "Oh, Joe's doing something interesting on this one." Yeah, but it may actually be the influence of the the DP. Is yeah. that true? Yeah, absolutely. Or the influence of the actor on the writing process, or whatever else it is. Yeah, I mean that's one of the that's one of the kind of fucked up things about the way uh, movies are read is is the auteur theory has kind of. Uh, caused everybody to focus all of the creative energy on the director when it's when it's in my experience often not the case um and or that the director is like one third of the creativity behind a certain project or something um but nobody knows how to talk about that and also directors are, are aren't very willing to give up that credit you know because um it feels nice to be the brains behind the operation, or at least to get credit as being the brains behind the operation. So I've always tried to be very generous with crediting the actors as writers on the movie or, or, uh, or you know, giving the cinematographers credit for the visual look or whatever else. But, um, but even when I try and do that, there's still a sense of like, uh, that I'm the one that's influencing all these factors. I would say, you know, certainly as the editor of my own films, I'm making all the final decisions about what's in or not in the movie. But, um, but beyond that, yeah, there, there, I think there needs to be a reevaluation of, of who gets credit, or we just need to stop being worried about credit and just uh, take each individual movie on its own terms. But you were just saying like you watched a bunch of my movies in a row, uh, you know whatever consistencies you saw from one to the next, that's probably my influence, you know. Uh, and then outside of that, the, that's probably other people's. Uh, the, the inconsistencies are probably other people's. Well, even with the auteur theory, there's also the possibility for, like, you know, your blue period, right? Like, mm -hmm. if you were Picasso, mm -hmm. right? Like, you could mm -hmm. see kind of, like, when certain techniques, like, in the, in the early films, I noticed that there are a lot of... Um, moments where there's a, a, a lack of synchronicity between the audio and yeah, the visual. Right, right. And that kind of holds true for a few films. Yeah, and then, and I, then I stopped yeah. doing it. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, my interests change, you know. And also, one the thing that I'm most afraid of as a filmmaker is like getting 
into a rut where I'm like the way that a lot of the a lot of the people who influenced um, me when I was a teenager and sort of first getting into the idea of making movies, uh, guys like Jim Jarmusch and Hal Hartley and and I mean the, you know those two are easy specific examples to point to, but like they're still making those movies. You know their 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 vision is so unique and so uh, specific that like. At this point, I'm totally uninterested in in what they're doing as filmmakers. You know, it's it's become parody of itself for me. So, uh, uh, I don't take anything away from them. I think they're both like brilliant. You know, but but also I'm just not along for the ride anymore. Whatever whatever thing they're doing, uh, they lost me as a viewer along the way, which is fine. I you know I mean uh, they certainly shouldn't care whether I like their movies or not, but. Um, I really don't. I really don't want to be still making the same kinds of movies twenty years from now. You know, it's really important for me to keep uh, challenging myself to evolve and, and try different things and get better at, at uh, making different kinds of movies. Do you think though that that may, to play devil's advocate, like lose the the trajectory of kind of like honing something until like you get it down to its? I guess it's a breadth, um, breadth versus depth. Like, yeah, and also, uh, to what end? To yeah. you know, like, like that's the thing. That's actually where the major shift with Silver Bullets happened. You know, from like uh, the visual look from Alexander Last to Silver Bullets, I think is a really uh, uh, hard left turn into something else. And uh, it's because I was when we started shooting Silver Bullets, I was just holding the camera, looking at the viewfinder, and I was just getting really bored on the set of my own movie. You know, I was finding that I was. Uh, sh- framing up shots the same way, I was covering scenes the same way, and I just thought, like, what's the point of getting better? You know, in- incrementally, like, like from from the first movie to the fifth movie, there's like big steps between each one, but those steps are going to get, uh, you know, more and more uh, uh, less visible, even if I'm getting better as a filmmaker, even if I'm honing uh, my skills at doing a specific thing. Uh, it's going to stop looking like advancement and it's going to start looking like repetition. Um, and I don't have much interest in making the perfect movie. You know, I don't, I, I'm not obsessive in that way. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't have one goal that I'm trying to reach. So I'm happy to spend the next 30 years getting, getting okay at a broad variety of things. And then who knows, maybe, you know, I mean, I, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm expecting that I'll still be making movies if I'm alive in my <laughs> 70s and 80s and 90s, you know. So uh, maybe then, uh, as I near the end of my life, I'll get more interested in uh, mastering certain things. But for right now, I'm, I'm just happy to, to learn, to be a student constantly and just have it all be practice. That's a really interesting perspective because it makes me wonder if, Coming from that perspective, you have a, you've tried a bunch of different things. If that allows for you to consider, like maybe this, like this film was the one where everything came together the most. Like, do you have that uh-huh. kind of detachment when you look at your own work? Well, I have. I certainly a few of them stand out to me. Um, uh, LOL. I still think we managed to capture a lot of things. I think we were, uh, we made an honest investigation into technology and masculinity at a certain point in time. Uh, so I'm still really fond of that movie. Um, 
and nights and weekends, I think, is uh, uh, we did a particularly good job of uh, letting our guard down and allowing the movie into our lives, you know, which was which was painful at the time, but uh, but I'm happy we did it. Um, I don't know if Greta's happy we did it, but I'm I'm certainly proud of the finished movie and uh, the the painful experience feels worthwhile to me at this point looking back on it. Um, and and then uh, this trilogy of movies is sort of the next thing that I I feel especially close to. Uncle Kent I really love. Um, that that movie's uh, will always be, I was having a really difficult time with Silver Bullets and, and I was like uh, a year and a half into the process of making Silver Bullets and like about to go crazy and I just like put it aside and went and made Uncle Kent and I feel like that movie really saved me from uh, going off the deep end. So I, I'm, I'm really especially fond of Uncle Kent and I, I also think that the, have you seen that one? Yeah. Uh, the last 30 minutes of Uncle Kent, I think, are, are the best, uh, some of the best filmmaking that I've done. Maybe the best. What moment would you start? Starting to... with them going on Craigslist and okay. finding the girl yeah, yeah. all through the end of the film. Um, and especially that sequence with Josephine, with the three of them. Uh, I'm, I'm really still particularly proud of that. Um, and... And uh, and then these these three films, you know, I think uh, I managed to say the things that I wanted to say. For me, that's like that's the barometer of whether the movie's successful or not. You know, did I did I manage to get across the things that, that I was interested in or trying to investigate? And uh, and all all three of these new ones um, feel like I I managed to do that, which is a good feeling. It, it, with Uncle Kent, I, I felt, and I don't know if you considered this at any point, but it almost seems like a little bit of an echo of, of kissing on the mouth to mm -hmm. some degree. And it's interesting that that's something that you went off on, and it seems yeah, yeah. like it was more of an organic, just yeah. spur of the moment. Well, it was me trying to get back to that, you know? I mean, I, I after, the, after the year and a half of laboring on Silver Bullets and not feeling like I was really getting anywhere, uh, I... I tried to hit the reset button a little bit, you know, and, and go back and find what it was that had first got me really excited and interested in filmmaking. And um, so it was an attempt to like really shed all the baggage and just make something, you know, get, get some friends of mine together and, and make something. Um, and it was a treat, you know, I mean, the whole experience was just such a pleasure. I, I haven't had that much fun in a really long time. And, and I needed that to, to like, to help get me through the end of Silver Bullets and also uh, to sort of un, unleash the floodgates on all these other ideas that I'd had in the meantime that had been kind of backing up behind Silver Bullets. So we did Uncle Kent in May of 2010 and then we did art history in June, and then uh, autoerotic, Caitlin plays herself, and finished Silver Bullets in July. And, you know, I mean, it was just like in a span of five months, I made, you know, five features or something. I mean, it was just really was like this incredible uh, uh, outpouring of, 
of ideas and, and I had a lot of help from friends and stuff and that's all because of Uncle Kent. You know, it, it, it really helped me get back to that place. I'm, I'm interested to know why you think, like I've noticed that Caitlin Plays Herself seems to be the, the most well received of those films. Yeah. Maybe that's a skewed perspective that I haven't read everything, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if maybe you could uh, consider why that may be of all. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I think Brody has a lot to do with that, with, with sort of helping change the discourse around my movies. Um, and then, uh, like, Jamie Christley at Slant uh, and, and Dan Sallett, uh, who is a filmmaker but also writes yeah. a lot about films. Like, these guys really, who, who, you know, Jamie, Jamie's sort of a new convert, I would say. You know, I, I think he was, like, always skeptical of, of my stuff. And, uh, but, I, you know, I think Dan Sallett and Brody have been there from the beginning champion, championing these movies. And... Uh, I think, you know, it's starting to have an effect. And so I feel like uh, Caitlin Plays Herself was the first of the sort of new string of work where people uh, felt okay saying that they liked the movie. You know, I mean, I think my my name was so uh, loaded and my work was so loaded uh, three or four years ago that even the people who liked it uh, very quietly liked it, you know. and uh, they're getting a little, uh, a, they're able a little bit more uh, to, to say that they find certain things compelling about my movie. You know, I mean, it's so funny, but there's just like, you know, there are a few uh, voices out there that are really uh, personal and mean, you know, and who are willing to engage in personal attacks um, against people that like my work, you know, and... Uh, and it's all very silly, you know. I've really disconnected from that side of things. Like I used to, up through Hannah Takes the Stairs, like I, I used to read every review and really look for that kind of stuff. And, uh, and as Hannah Takes the Stairs started playing around, it got so nasty that, you know, I, I sort of started to disengage and then uh, Nights and Weekends was the last one where I, I, you know, I dared to poke my head into the critical conversation and I just realized that it was ugly and that people hated the movie and hated me and, you know, I mean, it just got, uh, it seemed really bad and so I just completely unplugged and I just haven't read anything since then, you know. Uh, but it's, it's difficult to avoid, even though I don't, uh, I don't read anything anymore, uh, it gets sent to me or people tell me about it. You know, I mean, it's hard for me to not know uh, that certain people like certain things and other people didn't like other things because I'll just go to a film festival and somebody will just come up to me and be like, ah, <laughs> oh, isn't, you know, isn't it great that so-and-so wrote this nice review? Or like, oh, can you believe that they said this about you? And, and, uh, and so I found that I can't avoid it, but I don't have to go looking for it anymore. You know, I don't, I don't need to be tuned into it in order to be aware of, of what's being said or who's talking about stuff. And then like with somebody like uh, Jamie, you know, I just met, like he came and interviewed me when Caitlin Plays Herself was playing in New York. And um, and so, I, you know, I, I'm sort of becoming aware of who out there is kind of into my stuff or getting into my stuff. It's funny that you mentioned Slant because like, I don't want to like reduce them because it's always different writers in my experience. Yeah. But they were like strongly opposed for so long. And you say that your name is loaded, but I don't think, I think it's Mumblecore. Was, yeah. And I think that it's a term that had an expiration date and now that that's kind of expired. Yeah. 
people can come to your name as opposed yeah. to Mumblecore. Right, right, right. Be Though somebody like Bujalski's always been, uh, I mean, because he makes good movies, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, uh, but he's always been, uh, uh, the critics have always liked his stuff, I feel like. Um, and so he, he sort of managed to escape the Mumblecore ghetto in a sense. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and there was a period of time, like somebody like Adam Wingard's a really good example of, of a filmmaker who had absolutely nothing to do with Mumblecore, who got dragged into the Mumblecore ghetto just because of his affiliation with me, you know, like <laughs> just by casting me in some of his movies, suddenly he was like Mumblegore or whatever <laughs> else, you know, and it's just like, ah, oh, really? Like, uh, I, I feel like, uh, you know, uh, that I, I'm, I'm, I'm like walking around with like stink lines coming <laughs> off of me and anybody who gets close enough like get, you know starts to smell bad or something um, so I, in a way it's like when people when friends of mine like want to cast me in something or, or that you know like uh, uh, like Kentucker had me shoot open five and you know all these other things it's like I, I warn these people <laughs> like I'm just telling you if you involve me at all in this movie, you will be Mumblecore. You will be pulled into Mumblecore, whether you like it or not. Um, and then there's like all these, uh, on Facebook I've seen like some, these diagrams of like people and interconnectedness and stuff. <laughs> so it's like other, you know, other people end up getting dragged in also via like affiliations with other people. The nice thing about it, I think, is that the, the, the community, the filmmaking community that I'm part of has always been really broad and it's encompassed a lot of different kinds of filmmakers, like horror filmmakers and documentary filmmakers and people from the fine art world. And, uh, and these people have been my friends, you know, for almost a decade now. And, uh, and it's nice to see that, that uh, the work, the, the cross-pollination of the work is starting to be visible in a way that it didn't used to be visible so that um, somebody like Ty West who's been really a close friend of mine for a long time uh, it's only in the last year or two that people that there's actually work uh, that shows that we know each other and that, and that you know we've been bouncing ideas off of each other and, and whatever else so like the people who really like his movies who would who would like shit all over my stuff I think it's harder for them to do that now because they're like, oh, actually, like, you know, Ty West w watched an early cut of Nights and Weekends and gave me feedback. You know, like, for, for anybody who's like, I love Ty West and Joe Swanberg's an idiot, it's harder to, to then go back and say like, oh, well, I love Ty West and he's actually, like, advising on this project. Like, it's not as, as the worlds aren't as separate as people, um, I think, have thought that they have been. And the same is true of, uh, of a lot of artists in all, you know, film, filmmaking and other artists out there who we've all been uh, bouncing ideas off of each other for a long time now. And, um, and it's cool. The, the, the mumblecore, the idea of mumblecore being like these five or six specific like white middle class filmmakers, I think is starting to fall apart. It's interesting that Nights and Weekends keeps coming up because I think that's the point where with with negative reviews that I read, that was the one where I wasn't sympathetic anymore. Like, for some of the other ones, I could see, like, if it's not your bag, yeah. you're not going to like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with Nights and Weekends, it seems like it's almost like a, the closest to, like, being almost a classically composed and highly structured film. Yeah. And I could see that projection was still happening uh -huh. on that film. Uh -huh. But it, it does seem like it, it is, like, 
I don't know, like it's a very solidly constructed film. And the, yeah. the one of that early stage that really kind of broke through. Yeah. I'm wondering if maybe we could just talk about that film really closely sure. for my own interest. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, that, that, the whole experience of Nights and Weekends was really painful, you know, like, it was a tough movie to make, to make, um, and, uh, after the ease of Hannah Takes the Stairs and the sort of just like uh, pure pleasure of, of like living with everybody for a month in Chicago and making Hannah uh, to, to dive into something like Nights and Weekends, which was so painful and, and exposed, was like a real, it was the first time that I wasn't having fun making a movie. Um, and, and we shot a lot of stuff uh, a few months after Hannah, you know, so we so we made Hannah Takes the Stairs from like mid July to mid August of 2006, and then we shot Nights and Weekends in in November, the end of November, beginning of December of that same year. So, you know, the the Hannah experience was still fresh in Greta and I's mind, and suddenly, um, just because of a lot of complicated interpersonal dynamics, like shooting Nights and Weekends was a real uh, was just really miserable. And, and we came away from that. I finished, uh, you know, I think we finished around like December 6th of 2006 or something like that. I flew home from New York with the hard drive and I didn't even dare look at footage until April of the following year. You know, that, that hard drive just sat on my desk as this ominous, terrible thing containing footage that I didn't even want to touch or look at. And, uh, and you know, in, in order to sort of like fully realize where I was at that place, like Hannah Takes the Stairs, uh, you know, had been, at that point had been rejected by Sundance and we didn't know what was going to happen to it, you know, so we were just really, uh, it looked as if what felt to me like a really fertile creative relationship looked like it had just washed up, you know, like basically Hannah Takes Stairs wasn't going to go anywhere. Nights and Weekends was a miserable experience. And, and what I thought, you know, what I, I assumed Greta would be like a, an, a, an intense collaborator for the rest of my life, it now looked like we weren't even ever going to talk to each other again, you know. So, um, and then Hannah Takes the Stairs uh, premiered at South by Southwest and just got a ton of attention, like caught us all really off guard, like got a ton of attention. And uh, as Hannah Takes the Stairs started its sort of festival run, uh, you know, I just brought the hard drive with me on the road. So Greta and I were editing nights and weekends, uh, city by city, as we were traveling around with Hannah Takes the Stairs. And, uh, and then in the summer of 2007, when the IFC Center did their, like, uh, you know, Mumblecore series, um, we had a cut, a feature-length cut of Nights and Weekends that was just stuff from the first year. Um, and and we, uh, we showed it to some people, we showed it to Aaron Katz, we showed it to some other friends of ours, and everybody looked at it and said, it's a really difficult, tough movie. You know, there's like cool stuff here, but it's a really hard movie to watch. And... Uh, the night of the premiere, the night of the New York premiere of Hannah Takes the Stairs, um, 
I remember we watched the movie, we did the Q&A, and then we were going across the street to a bar to get drinks, and Greta and, and Anisha and I just stood on the sidewalk, and Greta was like, I think we need to shoot more stuff. And I was like, that is the last thing in the world. Like, I so badly <laughs> want to be done with this movie. Like, I really don't want to shoot more stuff. And she was like, I think we need, I, I just don't think it's done. I think we need to shoot more. And so Anish and Dia Sokol and Greta and I all got on the phone and sort of brainstormed some ideas of like what, you know, would we shoot more stuff from the first, you know, would we just sort of flesh out the stuff we had already shot? And, and I think we were just like, we can't, it just, we can't do it that way. It needs to be, if we're going to shoot more stuff, the story needs to continue. We can't, we can't fill in what's already there. So it really, it ended up, that was in August that that conversation happened, and it, it really wasn't until December that we, that we got back together, and, and Matthias, who had shot the first half, wasn't available again. So Ben Kosolke, who, who I'd gotten to know in the meantime, uh, came and shot the second half, and uh, it was just Greta and Ben and I, you know? I mean, we were, this, we were doing the sound ourselves. It was just the three of us for like five days. And, and we had changed, you know, like Greta and I were just different people. And, and it felt really interesting to make a movie about that change, you know, about a relationship where, it, you know, in the intensity of the relationship, it seems like that other person is the whole world. And then once you kind of distance yourself from that, suddenly uh, they're barely even a character in your life. You know, like uh, when, when I call her at the beginning of the second half of Nights and Weekends, she's like surprised to even hear from me. You know, that's how... Uh, distant we'd grown and that was true of, of Greta and I at the time too you know I just wasn't uh, we did the sort of uh, New York uh, release of Hannah Takes the Stairs in in August and then uh, I had gotten married in the meantime and just had other uh, there was another project that I was working on uh, that I ended up not making but was at the time occupying all of my time and so you know I think between August and December uh, when we went back to shoot more, I probably only talked to Greta two or three times in that five-month window, you know, so, um, or four-month window. So, uh, we just really got back together just in the spirit of, like, trying to fix the movie, not even because she and I were really friends anymore. And we made, you know, we did it for the six days and, uh, and finished it and it and it premiered at South by Southwest the next year. And, you know, between December when we finished it and when it premiered at South by Southwest, I probably only talked to Greta once. And then we did the Q&As at South by Southwest and I probably only talked to her two times, two or three times since then. I mean, it really was the end of that working relationship and that friendship, you know, and, and, and but I'm really proud of the movie because we got all that in there, you know? And that final scene of Nights and Weekends where we're talking outside and saying goodbye it was the last thing we ever shot. You know, I mean, that was the last night of the shoot. And uh, so it's cool. You know, the movie is, is, feels very self-contained to me and feels very much like uh, uh, total from beginning to end encapsulation of the time that we spent making it, you know, and also of the changes that happened. Because in the meantime, like, we had both gone from being nobody to somebody. You know, not much of somebody, but, like, that New York... Uh, that sort of mumblecore series that they did at the IFC Center, uh, you know, not much is coming out at the end of August. It's sort of the doldrums for movie stuff. So that series was kind of the thing people were talking about for the week leading up to it and the week after it. And so for those two weeks, we were 
you know, I was getting recognized on the subway and, you know, I mean, weird things that had never, uh, that I never thought would be part of my experience as a filmmaker was kind of starting to happen to me. And, and by the time we shot that second half of Nights and Weekends, we were just really different people and we were in really different places. Greta had gone and, and made Baghead in the meantime. You know, I mean, just a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, doors were opening up for us to, to like start to think about actually being filmmakers for a living and, and like doing this full time. I really think the in, the ending's interesting because usually in most films you kind of have a key to how to read the film at the start. Yeah. Like even if you don't pick up on it. Yeah. But I think with Nights and Weekends, and this is clearly reflecting what, what you've just said, like you really don't get it until the end mm -hmm. when you kind of realize that these are two people that are both fine. There's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with them, but they're just not going to work. Yeah. And you, you, it doesn't really become like concrete yeah. until right. that right. last right. goodbye. Yeah. Which is something that I, I, I mean, I really strongly feel like it's possible to love somebody and not like them. And also to not, to have relationships in your life where uh, they're just not good ideas. You know, they're, they're, they're harmful relationships. And it doesn't diminish uh, the love that's there, but it also makes it impossible to really be around that person. Um, and and it's it's just not something that people want to make movies about. You know, it's not pleasant. None of that. None of none of that idea is pleasant to anybody. So, um, so it was it, it it was nice to accidentally dive into that to not know we were making a movie about that and only discover at the end that we were making. Because if we had set out to make a movie about that, I think it would have been too difficult, too impossible to really... Or even too on the nose throughout. Yeah, right? Like, right. Yeah, 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 right. But it's interesting in hindsight, too, because it's like your your work with Greta and like your your camera work even like really captures something that is extremely fertile. Yeah. But it, to have to like, as a viewer, recognize that there's an expiration date on that as well, uh -huh. like, that can only last for so long. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh, in a way, I feel incredibly lucky to have captured her at, the, at that point, you know, where she wasn't uh, a professional actor, you know, where she, she very may well have become a playwright or something had we not done Hannah Takes the Stairs, you know, like, uh, or something else, who knows, something else. But like, um, but then at the same time, it's been really bizarre to, like, when I in the middle of making probably five days or so into shooting Hannah Takes a Series, I was like, man, this girl is a movie star. Like, there's, there's, she's going to be mega famous and like, uh, and she's going to be a movie star. And then when we finished the movie and it premiered, I was like, all right, here's the moment it's going to happen. Like, she's going to, next thing I know, uh, you know, whoever, Woody Allen's going to call her or whatever. It's been weird to see that that took four years yeah. to happen, you know, that, 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 that process is so slow that like the thing that seems so apparent to me in the summer of 2006, uh, wow, six years now, that Woody Allen movie is going to come out this summer. Uh, six years later, finally, <laughs> the thing that I thought would happen like the next day uh, is, is finally happening, you know. Are you expecting that again now with, um, with the trilogy, with the... Kate? Yeah. 
I mean, I think Kate and Amy Simons both, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, but now that I know that it's a really slow process, I know that it won't, it will be a while, yeah. but yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're just, they're incredibly talented, you know, there's no reason why uh, they won't receive that same kind of attention. So you're going to continue to be kind of a training ground for... We'll see. I mean, I, as I get uh, as I get older, and as the stories I want to tell are older stories, um, it's seeming like I'm going to have to work with people that are already yeah. established. The because uh, it's hard to find people in their 30s who haven't been discovered <laughs> yet. You know. Um, I wanted to talk briefly just about Young American Bodies too, because that's a web series, uh -huh. and it, it's it's something that I find interesting that you worked with especially given your comments about internet reception because that's something meant to be watched on the internet. Yeah. I'm wondering, and it's also got seasons, right? Like yeah. It's episodic. I'm wondering how you change your approach for something like that. That show was, was always just such a pleasure to do um, and really a fun... Uh, did you lose your mind? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're on it. <laughs> oh, no. Where is it coming from? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I approached it the way a show like Home Improvement or something, you know, I mean, just like a very basic sitcom yeah. works where if you watch Home Improvement, every episode is basically the same. Yeah. Not basically. Every episode <laughs> is the same. How much Home Improvement have you watched? <laughs> I mean, as a kid, I watched all that stuff, you know, TGI Friday and all, you know, I mean, I, I really... Uh, I was a, a big consumer of media as a child, all, all media, you know, magazines, books, TV, like every mass media. Um, and so that, that format's really deeply ingrained in me. So we, you know, every episode of Young American Bodies follows that, like there's an opening scene and then there's the credits and then there's kind of like three scenes and then a little outro thing and then it's done, you know. Um, and I really, uh, it's very appealing to me actually to work within a rigid kind of structure like that. I actually really liked it. Um, and when you, when the structure becomes really rigid, you, you suddenly have a lot of freedom within the structure, you know? So we were able to do cool things in that show because the episodes are so short and because, uh, it's, you know, we are doing the kind of cliffhanger endings and, and whatever else that TV does. Um, and also, like, the web was a wide open, it was the Wild West at the time, you know? I mean, we, we shot the first, the pilot uh, episode of Young American Bodies in January of 2006, you know? So I had just finished LOL, and, uh, and it was really, uh, I had all the freedom in the world to play around because people weren't making web shows then, you know? Or there were, there were a few, but I wasn't even really aware of them. And so, you know, it, it, it just got to be really fun to work with the same actors over the course of four years and tell a lot of different stories. And um, it also, that Young American Bodies actually did become the sort of testing ground for people. Uh, like Greta, you know, before I cast her in Hand Takes Tears, we shot the stuff for Young American Bodies and, um, and Kent Osborne and several other people who became uh, actors in my movies sort of I started out working with on Young American Frank Ross and you know just a bunch of people who who've become important collaborators for me 
that was an easy way to, to do something with them first, uh, just as a, as a kind of trial. Are you interested in pursuing that further? I'm, I'm thinking kind of the episodic quality, yeah. the serialization. Yeah, yeah, definitely, but there's not money in it yeah. anymore. It, it, at the time there was, you know, I mean, we were so on the forefront of that stuff that uh, Nerve and then IFC.com were really ready to take a risk and pay for a show like that. Uh, and they've all moved away from, from serialized <laughs> web content. It's just nobody's doing it anymore. The web show uh, bubble has burst. And there's no room on any kind of TV, Netflix, anything? Maybe. Yeah? Actually, yeah. Hulu and Netflix are starting to produce original content, but they don't want to do a show like Young American. Nobody wants to touch sex. I mean, yeah. nobody wants to deal with it now. So if I did a show for any of those people, it wouldn't be like Young American Bodies. It would be a much more uh, standard kind of comedy or drama. So was it immediately after LOL? Because like there is the site Young American Bodies in LOL and Greta's in LOL yeah. in photo form. Yeah, it was immediately after. We, I was still working on LOL a little bit when yeah. we shot the pilot. So I started shooting LOL in the summer of 2005 and then uh, I was finishing it up in, in January of 2006 while I was shooting the pilot for Young American Bodies. I guess what I find interesting about it is that your, your films all have a kind of philosophy of the internet in them. Uh -huh. And that's like the one place where you're actually full on engaging with it. Yeah. And, and is that maybe Kevin's influence? Like that kind of like internet philosophy? Uh, that's a big influence from Kevin. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, making LOL with Kevin completely shifted my, the way that I thought about technology and, and the incorporation of technology into the movies. I, I you know, I, that, that was like a potential fork in the road for me. If I hadn't made LOL with Kevin, I think, you know, one of the early bad ideas that I had was like, for LOL, was like, well, let's make all the technology out of cardboard or something like that so that it doesn't date itself, you know, so that it's more like the idea of technology, not actual technology. So like, we'll still have them using cell phones, but it'll just be a block of cardboard and, and, and so that way it'll just always look silly and 20 years from now people can still sort of engage with it. Kevin was like, you're totally wrong because, uh, what will a, what will date the movie won't be the way a laptop looks. It will be the whole idea of walking up to a desk and sitting at a computer and using it. So whether the computer looks like a current computer or is a piece of cardboard, just the idea of somebody sitting down and using that computer will be the thing that dates it. And he was completely right. And so uh, from that point forward now, I've been really specific about the technology. I've, I actually... I make the movies knowing that the technology will be outdated soon, and that's part of the whole point, you know. So, um, and just in general, Kevin, it, Kevin is a. I mean, he and I were high school friends. You know, we've known each other for forever. So, um, he's always just been a really uh, important, influential voice in in my life and in the kind of creative decisions that I've made. And I've been lucky to be able to work with him a lot, you know as he's changed too and as his ideas have changed.